I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk to you about Anchor. Anchor is brought to you by Spotify and is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It will also help you distribute your podcast across popular podcast hosting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Best of all, you can make money from your podcast on Anchor with no minimum listenership. So for those of us just starting out, this is very helpful. And do you know how much it costs to have everything you need to make a podcast in one place? 100% free. Yep, you heard me right. You can do all of this and make money for free. So if you have been thinking about starting your own podcast, now is your chance. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, I'm Yan. Hi, I'm Yvonne. Welcome to Lost and Refound Podcast. We're a podcast discussing our personal journeys as modern Asian women and sharing inspiring stories from within our community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lost and Refound Podcast. I'm your host, Yan. We have Yvonne. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Yan. How are you? I'm doing well. This is a wonderful Saturday we're recording here today, and I'm so excited for our guest this afternoon. I know. It's a beautiful day. Once we're done with this, we have a whole day to enjoy. But today we do have a more serious topic than our other episodes, but it's one we felt compelled to share. One, because we ourselves barely understand this condition, and we have so many questions, and also because it affects so many children and their families. We wanted to get a better understanding and hopefully share some facts with you all. So according to National Autism Association, autism now affects one in 54 children, and the rate of autism diagnosis has steadily grown over the past 20 years. Autism is not a hopeless condition. It is treatable, but early intervention is key. However, while autism is the fastest growing development disorder, it is also the most underfunded. Since neither Yvonne nor I have much understanding of this condition, we are so lucky to have Neelam Patel join our conversation today. Neelam is the Chief Operation Officer at Milestone, which is a provider of applied behavior analysis treatment and social skills group for children with autism spectrum disorder. I cannot wait to get into this conversation. Please help me welcome Neelam to the show. Hi, Neelam. Hi, Yan. Hi, Yvonne. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being on the show. We know you're very busy, so we're very fortunate to have you on to discuss this topic with us. But before we get into the conversation, can you introduce yourself to our audience and a little bit about what you do? Sure. So my name is Neelam. I, uh, my title is technically BCBA, which stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst. Um, and this is just a fancy term that we use for people who can um, essentially bill insurance services to provide applied behavior analysis to individuals on the autism spectrum disorder. Okay, so can you first talk about what is applied behavior analysis? So applied behavior analysis is one, it's the main treatment for autism. Essentially, it's a, um, it's a science of learning and behavior. It's a, it's a type of therapy, and it helps us to understand how behavior works, how behavior is affected by the environment and you know, how learning can take place. But we do it in socially significant ways. So we're looking to help one kiddo maybe learn how to tie their shoelaces, 
and we're helping another kiddo maybe learn how to functionally request for items like their bottle or milk or something. Okay. So I know there's um, a huge spectrum within autism. Can you talk about what are autism spectrum disorders? How many types of autism is there and what are the symptoms for the different types? Good question because it's changed pretty recently. Um, So there's a diagnostic tool called the DSM-5. And this is a diagnostic tool that's used to diagnose ASD as well as other mental disorders. And they recently kind of changed the identification of the spectrum. Before, you may have heard terms like Rett's disorder or Asperger's is pretty common. Yep. We have eliminated all that and just changed it all to autism spectrum disorder and then split it into levels. So level one, two, and three. One being for kind of more of the milder um, symptoms and then three for the most severe. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of kind of hearing that term Asperger's or Rett's or even pervasive developmental disorder, everything's just autism spectrum disorder now. Okay. So with a different spectrum, it's very different, right? Some kids with less severe autism, um, they almost seemed normal. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to tell they have autism. And then there are kids I know who um, are not functional at all, or kids who are very violent. When you get new kids in, are you able to right away tell, you know, if they're the, you know, going to be the more violent uh, spectrum, or is it, or is there like uh, a progression of time before you notice that? So the kiddos that we treat have already had a diagnosis of autism. Mm, Okay. So luckily I'm able to review all of their old records and medical reports and things like that. So doing that initial intake where I get to read all of their, you know, previous information, this really helps me kind of put into my mind kind of an idea of which type of kiddo I'm going to meet and and their family background, because that's very important too. Um, you know, how many siblings are in the house, if it's a multi-generational house, um, if there's other disorders in the family. Mm. At the same time, I also kind of want to go in with um, sort of a fresh pair of eyes. I don't necessarily want to use the paperwork when I can, because even sometimes that can be very skewed. Like I'll read the paperwork and think like, okay, I'm going to meet you know, a two-year-old who's very happy and he can say three-word, you know, requests. And then I'll go in and I'll see this, you know, two-year-old who's, you know, hitting his mom and causing bruises. And I'm like, wait a minute, Mm. (laughs) work at all. So luckily I get to do an an entire assessment process. Right now I'm doing everything via telehealth, you know, safety of COVID. But usually I go into the client's home on at least two separate occasions I administer a couple of different assessment tools, and these tools will help me determine on a developmental scale kind of where their skills lie in terms of communication, behavior, self-help skills, socialization skills. And then I'll also interview the families, and I'll take some time to observe the kiddo. This is crucial because unfortunately, when you diagnose a kiddo with autism, um, there's no blood test or chromosomal test or anything like that. It's all kind of based on developmental history, behavior, observations, you know, a treatment team kind of working together to sort of just determine it, unfortunately. And this is where misdiagnosis can come into play, but I can talk about that later. Mm. But, um, but yeah, so I use all these to kind of formulate clinical recommendations, the goals that I think that would be best and most beneficial for the client. And most importantly, I write goals 
for the family, for the parents, because mm-hmm. they can't do anything. We're, you know, providing therapy two to three hours a day. If the families aren't going to pick up where we left off for the other 20, 22 hours a day, you know, mm-hmm. all of our work is going to be unraveled if we don't get some carryover from the families. Right. Consistency and repetition. Yes, it's key. And you've mentioned a lot about working with the parent and making sure the parent understands what their children needs. Do the, does the child also know what they need as well? Are they aware of where they are on the spectrum? That's a great question. You know, the majority of kiddos that I work with probably average around age two to 10. I don't think a whole lot of them are very familiar or have a good grasp of their diagnosis. And there is still, unfortunately, some kind of shameful feelings with families where they don't necessarily want to share that, even with their own kiddo. So I haven't really come across a a whole lot of individuals who are very aware of their diagnosis and even know that I think they just think of us as like teachers in a sense, rather than therapists that are actually addressing their diagnosis. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize you weren't introduced as their doctor or, um, or anything of, of that nature. And that makes sense, especially because it could be really scary um, as a child to also associate maybe fear with doctor as well, when clearly this is nothing to fear. It's really, really something to help them understand and, and also understand themselves better as well. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think back and trying to think if I know anyone who who actually says I am autistic, I don't I don't know if I do know someone. I do know that um, my my mother she's she's mentioned oh I think your brother might be autistic, but he himself has never actually said that. So and we've never had him diagnosed as well. And now he's an adult, so there could be people that could have had the opportunity to be diagnosed as a kid but just never had that opportunity. Is it too late as an adult? And is the development time a little bit different from um, adult and and childhood? It's never too late to seek diagnosis, no matter what type of mental or psychiatric disorder that you're suffering from. And I really am emphatic for anyone who feels like they may um, be suffering from anything. I'm really emphatic with going out and seeking that diagnosis. there's so there's a world of assistance out there for anyone with a disorder. And um, the great thing about ASD, autism spectrum disorders, is that um, back in 2012, there was a Senate bill that was passed, Senate Bill 946. And this Senate bill allowed insurance to pay for ABA therapy. So now, it, yes, it became very, it became so much more accessible. <laughs> Um, Before, it was really hard to get therapy. It was really hard to get assistance. You really had to go through a lot of avenues. And now, as soon as you get the diagnosis, I mean, you can sign up for therapy um, as soon as you need. And it's covered by a simple copay. So there's a lot of family assistance, financial assistance there. So, um, you know, any time in your life that you feel like you want to go out and get some help, I definitely, definitely encourage it because more than ever, ABA therapy is accessible to the entire population. Yeah, and I recently realized that we don't understand our insurance. So that yeah, makes a lot of sense. We definitely do not understand our insurance. <laughs> what, what, yeah, like why these very important diagnoses or just important benefits aren't being talked about because most people don't even understand what's covered and what's not covered. But they're mm-hmm. scared about getting that unknown bill. They don't know how much it's going to cost two months down the line. 
And I, I'm so glad that you're able to share that and that we can now have the knowledge and empowered to look into our own insurances and realize <laughs> what's possible. <laughs> all part of the financial budget discussion that I hope we also have with you one day. <laughs> oh, yes, anytime. <laughs> Um, so actually, before this episode, Yvonne and I are, and I are talking about that we don't really know anybody with autism growing up, right? And then reading the statistic that autism has been increasing the last 20 years, and then you hear words like there's an autism epidemic that's going on right now. Do you think it's more related to that just people just were not getting diagnosed 20 years ago versus now we know more and parents are a lot more active of bringing their children in to get diagnosis if they notice something different. Do you think that is why we are noticing more numbers? Or do you think there's something going on that more children are being born with autism? Um, I think it's a combo of the first two things that you mentioned. I definitely think there's a lot more public awareness and acceptance of the disorder. Um, and I think that there's a lot more um, doctors who have been trained in the diagnostic process. Mm-hmm. So, that in those two kind of combinations is why we're seeing such a, a drastic increase in the in the numbers. And also, as I mentioned, the availability of services has drastically increased as well. So I think that that can all be a, a factor. I don't necessarily think that there's more children being born with the diagnosis. This is a purely personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a strong opinion um, about why, you know, I think that there's so many rising numbers. It's just a personal opinion. But um, as I mentioned, I I have been working with kids with autism for almost 20 years. When I first started, it was, I was working with very severe children, you know, very aggressive, very low vocalizations. Um, And now, I mean, the kiddos that I'm working with, they've really changed over the past, you know, seven, eight years. And I'm seeing a lot more higher functioning kiddos coming out kind of towards the old version of Asperger's um, being presented. And when I start to work with these kiddos, I start to wonder, is this, does this child have an autism spectrum disorder? And I'm nervous talking about it because I have a strong opinion about this. But um, I, I, I sometimes wonder if it's the new generation of families putting an iPad in front of their kids and then wondering why they're not social. And mm. the social communicative disorder. And when I see all these, I see an increasing, increasing, increasing amount of parents parenting their children via iPads for either because they're too tired or because they're too stressed or lazy or because they don't want to deal with the behavior. So when a kiddo's tantruming, here, here's the iPad, it's just easier. I see less active parenting and more passive with the iPad. And then subsequently, as I mentioned, wondering why they're not communicating as much and not as social. It's pretty clear to me. You know, I actually 
can see that example in my own household. Before the pandemic, my children were very active. You know, the weekends we took them out. They have a lot of play days, birthday parties. And then when the last year, when we were in the lockdown and, you know, my husband and I both working full time, we did rely a lot more on screen time. So they're always in front of TV. They're in front of our iPad for school, social you know, distance learning. They're in front of their laptops and they're spending most of their day on in front of the screen. And I have noticed not necessarily with my older daughter, who's 10 now, but with my younger daughter, who is five. Um, she is a lot less social. And it's interesting, she was the more outgoing between the two. And while she does talk to talk a lot more at home, when we go out now, she is a lot more shy. She is a lot less social than she used to be. So I can see the correlation there. It's funny because I'm seeing the exact same thing in my household. Obviously, we're all trying to struggle and give ourselves grace during this shelter in place. And yes, our kiddos are forced to have more screen time because they're all going to school on screen. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what we're going through now, but for some families, it's kind of a crutch that's been used for the past decade. Yes, yes. Instead of just this time period now, we're going to give ourselves grace and understand that this is, it's just a temporary thing. Same with my youngest son. He's a lot less, you know, social and talkative over this past year. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine if I, if I continued this or this continued for so many more years, how quickly he would decline. Yes. Yes, that's my concern right now, too. We are literally, you know, trying to schedule play dates with families we know who are safe and trying to get them outdoors more. But it's actually progressively harder for me to get her outdoor because she hasn't she'd rather be at home mm-hmm. than even walk the dog outside. That's so funny. It's exactly the same. I'll tell my um, oldest one is totally fine with taking a walk. Yes. I mean, he just now that he's used to being at home, he wants to stay at home. And it's just it's getting harder and harder for me to try and get some social. And like you said, he used to be the social kiddo, Mm -hmm. the one talking to everyone. So it's pretty sad um, in that aspect to see how this has affected our kiddos, our younger kiddos, especially. Yeah. So let's talk about these false diagnoses. Um, You know, I hate to bring this up, but I feel like this is a huge part of autism. uh, Conversation is vaccinations. Um, I will go ahead and say right now, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I vaccinate my kids. I believe in vaccination. I do have my own opinions on vaccination, but I, my kids are vaccinated. You know, if they're going to play with any kids, they need to be vaccinated as well. But this is a huge conversation. And I think it was started by Jenny McCarthy, which I find hilarious that we're taking medical advice from Jenny McCarthy. Um, but it turned out, I think her son was falsely diagnosed. But the damage is done, right? There's such a huge conversation around this. Um, I, I mean, I don't know your opinions. I would love to hear your opinion. It's so funny you mentioned Jenny McCarthy. So I could probably record an entire separate podcast just on how vehemently I despise what <laughs> Into the autism community. Mm-hmm. Um, I am pro-vaccinations. I am fully vaccinated. My children are as well. Mm-hmm. I believe that vaccines cause autism. It's been widely discredited. Yes. Um, yes. And, and I think even the author of that paper came out and said that it wasn't 100% true. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought I read that. But it's it just crazy how people still continue to believe this false narrative. It's really unfortunate because, it, I mean, at first, this doctor in the UK is the first one who kind of brought out this possibility in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, 
happened with the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that causes this uh, intestinal lining damage that causes autism. Mm-hmm. Second, with a mercury containing preservatives in some vaccines. So you may hear people say that the mercury is what caused the autism. Okay. First of all, if that were true, then all of us would have autism. So yes. I don't understand that. And second of all, that first doctor in the UK, his there was no reliable data to support his findings. Mm-hmm. But however, as you mentioned, this whole thing was completely magnified by this popular, you know, um, notion that Jenny McCarthy brought out. Um, she also famously stated that she cured her son of autism. There is no cure for autism. Right. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but she also opened up an autism center, which apparently shut its doors within two years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There were some legalities and some issues surrounding this so-called autism center that she opened. And then, you know, she very quietly later said that maybe her son doesn't have autism or Mm -hmm. there was no cure, but it was so quiet as compared to her very strong opinion before about the vaccine movement, which is carried and carried for so over a decade now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One person who gets that feeling is going to continue to spread that, which will spread to someone else, which will spread to someone else. Yeah. I mean, there are whole communities of parents, especially, I mean, in the Bay Area, there are whole communities of parents that are not vaccinating their children. And this is their number one reason. Now, when you're dealing with these parents, is this part of a conversation you, you find yourself having to have with more parents that you like, or, or do they not believe in this? I'm seeing fewer parents. Okay, that's good. Are believing the vaccine uh, hypothesis. However, on the other hand, I am still getting an increasingly large amount of families who are trying these alternative methods, if you will, that they're getting maybe from their home countries in regards to um, having a gluten-free diet, Um, a certain oil on your scalp will cure autism for some families. Um, Chelation therapy, which deals with cleaning or doing things to the blood, which is extremely dangerous. There's a lot of these alternative therapies that people are trying in there. And it's, it's it's because families are scared and I get it. It's not an easy diagnosis to go through. It's not easy understanding this. However, I only back science-based programs and therapies like applied behavior analysis, like developmental therapy, early intervention, which will really just help gain skills with with the kiddo and decrease behaviors. It's as simple as that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when you're out um, working with children or when you're first meeting these children, what are the signs that you're looking for? It depends. It's very variable. Okay. Um, it's, it's a spectrum for a reason. They say when you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism <laughs> um, because it just it can vary so widely. In general, though, kids with autism tend to have an increase in um, kind of sensory needs or sensory difficulties and a decrease in their ability to socialize and communicate. Um, how this presents itself is different for every kiddo. Um, But these are the three kind of main things, the sensory issues, communication, and socialization. 
So in that regard, there's really no um, kind of special or, or new way that you can kind of prepare yourself or anticipate for meeting an individual with autism. Personally, what I like to do is I kind of like to stand back a little and observe how they're interacting with their environment, how their families are interacting with them, how they play, how they communicate. For some kiddos, you know, I can go up to them and start kind of shrieking like, good job, you're doing so fantastic, you know, great, great work, high five, and they'll just thrive off of it. And for some, that's going to be too loud for their sensory needs, and they're going to, they're going to back away from me, and they're not going to want to interact. And you, there's only one time to make that good first impression. So I'd rather really take my time and take time to observe the kiddo and see what works best for them. Then I'll go in and interact with them after I get a feel for, okay, they like a little quieter tone of voice. They like light pats on the back instead of a firmer pat in terms of their sensory needs, things like that. And then I'll kind of use the principles of ABA accordingly, individualize that so that it's working specifically for that kiddo. And it's always going to be um, a trial and error with ABA. We're always going to try an intervention. If it works for kiddo, great. If it doesn't, try something else. And the best thing about ABA is it works for, it's, it's about the science of learning and behavior. And every single human being engages in a behavior. You're nodding your heads right now, which is a behavior. <laughs> um, so ABA works for every human in the world. If you want to get your husband to do the dishes, I will tell you how using ABA. Oh, I will hire you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So in terms of, you know, for people like us who have not encountered um, a lot of examples of autism, you know, I'm always a little afraid to approach parents with autistic children about this topic or even approach the children because I don't want to upset the children. I'm not really sure how to interact with, with children. Um, who are on the spectrum because I'm afraid of scaring them or being, you know, too much for them. Um, so is there some advice you can share on how do we approach children on dif- different spectrum of autism? Yeah, so I try and approach a child with autism as I would any other child. I, in, in With any child, I would, I usually get down on their level so that we're at eye, eye contact together. I usually use, you know, short, succinct phrases um, like high five, help me, get me the red block, nothing to, with any kid, if you, if you give them paragraphs of language, they're just going to hear want, 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 want. Right. And then, as I mentioned with the touch, you know, kids with autism tend to have sensory needs. So this relates to their sense of touch, hearing, smell, you know, et cetera. So I want to be careful about touching kiddos because Um, There's been research that certain types of touch can actually register as pain with kiddos with autism. So I would, I never touch kiddos until I've really gotten to know them and determined. And also with talking by talking with the families, what if, if they have sensory needs regarding touch and don't hesitate um, also to, to chat with the parents about it. Many parents, you know, I, I tend to notice that they feel isolated in this diagnosis. And um, sometimes when I start talking to parents, I just, I almost have to put my therapy hat on with the families because they just want to talk. Sometimes they just want to get it out, vent, get their feelings out. So, you know, even just allowing them that avenue for them to have a, a, a safe place to talk where they won't feel judged and um, you're open to meeting their kiddo and 
and happy to, to interact with them would make a world of difference. That is good to know. Yeah. Um, Sophie's previous best friend's brother um, was on the, on the spectrum and he actually was not mobile or verbal and he was getting therapy and it was very difficult on his mother who had to basically give up her career uh, and she was a single parent. So she you know, spent most of her time taking care of him. At 11, he still needed like diaper change. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult. And, you know, whenever she, I do see her, um, you know, she would just like tell me everything. And it's very heavy. And sometimes I don't know what to say because I have not experienced that. And I don't want to come off, seem like I feel sorry for her because I know that's not what she wants. But I just, I just don't know what to say. <laughs> Honestly, just letting her pour it out is probably the best thing for her. I, my heart goes out to her because that sounds like an incredibly difficult situation. Um, and probably the sibling, you mentioned the sister, is that right? Yes. I'm sure that one, she's feeling a little isolated since so much attention is going to the brother. Mm-hmm. And she's probably in, in charge of some adult type responsibilities as well and helping mom out and not being able to be really a kid all the, you know, 24 seven. Um, so that must be very difficult. So I, I think just letting the family talk it out and being that ear and that sounding board is so fantastic. And then whenever you get a little bit of chance to, uh, give some one-on-one attention to the sister, I'm mm-hmm. sure it brings so much brightness to her as well. And then and speaking about siblings, how, do you usually talk to the siblings of the, the child that um, you are working with to also help them assimilate and just become, um, just be a better sibling to, to their fair family as well? Yes, yeah, sibling interaction is so important because that's the interaction you're going to carry generally for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm very conscious of not putting the sibling in that adult role with adult responsibilities, I'm very conscious of that. At the same time, I need that consistency with the family to approach these certain behaviors to make sure that we are reducing them and um, together and that there's the same expectation 24-7. So I definitely include the sibling with learning some techniques that I feel would be age appropriate depending on how old they are. Mm-hmm. More importantly than that, I almost always try and write some sort of goal or program that includes sibling interaction. Mm. want to make sure that that sibling feels included, feels like they're a part of this therapy too, feels like they can make a difference and learn, you know? And it's so crazy. Sometimes I'll go into a client's house and I'll be setting up and, you know, doing my own paperwork and I'll hear the sibling kind of directing the client with autism like a therapist would. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so nice to see them kind of like interacting and, and using these principles that they pick up on their own from listening to us. It's really great to see. And like I mentioned, inter- making sure that we're interacting with them as well is, is really important. Just making sure they feel included. Yeah. And that they feel loved because I think that right love and understanding the basic human needs um and being seen and being heard rather than being ignored is it's definitely much preferred so I just you talking about how siblings are interacting is makes me really smile because I I love my brother so much and I would not be the same person I am without him and just even looking back and thinking about oh shoot like when I was growing up I wish I 
I knew certain things not to do and what to do because at some point being the bossy older sister, I definitely pushed him away. And that mm-hmm. also probably affected his, his development as well. And it's just not, um, it's just not something we talk about. It's not something we were open to. And now I see that and I'm definitely a better older sister now. Um, and hearing that you can help families in that situation and that they themselves can learn to love each other the way that they should is just, it just is amazing. Yeah, so many families, especially in the Bay Area where it's incredibly expensive to live. Close quarters. I work with, yeah, they're, they're multi-generational households. So, I mean, we're working with aunts, uncles, grandparents, nieces, nephews. Um, we're doing, you know, we're trying to include as many family members as possible. One, it's just like you said, love and acceptance. But two, it's helping them understand this diagnosis a little bit better and, and helping not to isolate the family, the parents as much and giving them this additional support and feedback um, or allowing the, the mom and dad to maybe take a weekend away and feel comfortable letting kiddos stay with uncle because uncle's getting trained in the mm-hmm. principles of ABA too. Little things like that. It's so important. And what about friends? Do, do they usually bring their friends over as well so that they can also learn from you? Sometimes they do. We also facilitate peer play and peer interactions mm-hmm. with um, like neighbors and friends as well, which is also great because again, we're just spreading more of this awareness to other families. And then we get to facilitate play so that our kiddo is learning how to share, take turns, have flexibility, sportsmanship when he loses, like things like that, learning to play by the rules. Um, so it's so, it's, it's, it's always super helpful when we're able to get peers in to um, be a part of therapy and join in and then just spreading more of that awareness. And do you also interact with your teachers at school as well? Luckily, um, our insurance, the insurance mandates do allow us to interact with the um, treatment team at the school. Mm. It sometimes can be minimal because they want insurance, which covers medically necessary treatment to be very separate from school, which provides educationally appropriate treatment. They kind of want us to stay separate for, you know, for some reason. Um, however, collaborating with the treatment team and all the stakeholders, the doctor, psychologist, teacher, speech therapist, occupational therapist, family members, it's crucial because if I'm working on, you know, having him repeat two words and the speech therapist is already on four words, I'll be like, hey, kiddo, you can do four words for me. No, we're going to do four words. You know, like that that type of interaction is so important. So we make sure we're all on the same page. Um, so it's definitely something that that should be done often. And it's it's incredibly important to maintain the treatment of the child. Mm. And what would you say is the best part of, of your job? Oh, man. The best part of my job, that's got to be the kiddos themselves. I always say, you know, I, so I do in, I provide in-home therapy. So I drive all over the Bay and I see clients in their homes. And um, I usually max out at seeing about three clients per day, including, you know, the drive time and driving back home. And I always say I could see three kids a day and all three of them could spit on me and hit me and cause bruises. One of them used to throw trash at me. And I still wouldn't come home and be stressed out because if one kiddo looked at me when I came in and said, hey, Neelam, 
that would make my entire day. Oh, I would be like, yes, you said my name. You looked at me, you greeted me. Great job. I'm smiling for the rest of the day now. I don't care if you throw trash at me later. <laughs> wow. You have a, such a big heart, Nila. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, this, this field is a field where when you start working with the kiddos, you'll know within three months, either it's like, I got it. This is the field I'm going to be in for the rest of my life. I can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. Or it's complete opposite. I tried it. It's too hard. It's isolating. I'm driving around a lot. I can't handle it. I tried it and I, I can't do it again. So I'll go into a different field. And I was the former. I just, I started working with these kiddos. I couldn't stop. I, I, I couldn't imagine a different field for me. It's just, it's hundred percent perfect for my life. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I love it. I mean, that just shows what kind of special person you are, because like you said, a lot of people will not be able to do this job. Thank you so much. That means a lot. So you guys treat, um, children up to 10. Now, what happens to these children once they're in their teenage years and once after they turn 18 and they're adults? A lot of them on the lower spectrum are, are functional you know, in our society, but some of the most severe ones are not functional. Then what happens when they're adults where, you know, would they go into a home or are there services that will, that will come help them or are their parents just stuck, you know, caring for them rest of their lives? So, um, so I have worked with kiddos up to the age of about 18, Okay, age around age seven to 10 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, thankfully there are adult services and transition services. It's one of the hardest times in this, um, scope of parenting a child with autism is the, um, services to become an adult. Mm-hmm. Luckily there are regional centers scattered all across California and these regional centers, they provide adult assistance um, because there are some legalities involved when a kiddo turns 18. Family members, if they feel that the child is severe enough that they won't be able to make legal decisions on their own, mm-hmm. they would go through a legal court process to be named as their um, guardian after they turn 18. And they'll be able to make continued legal decisions on their behalf. Okay. At which point, um, and then of course, you know, the kiddos with autism do receive, you know, um, financial assistance from the state and federal, you know, um, uh, Medicare and disability and things like that. At that point, it's really up to the families. There are some families where they're going to have their kiddo live with them forever and they'll take care of them. And that's that. And then I have some where they move into group homes and I've worked with group homes for quite a bit um, over the past years. And they're all in their twenties up to seventies in those group homes. Or sometimes there's services where individual with autism can live in their own apartment, but maybe there's someone, a caretaker who comes in for the majority of the day or Mm -hmm. caregivers who are there 24 hours a day, or they live with the roommate and the roommate also gets caretakers. So luckily there's a couple of different options for adult services um, and there's still a lot of help, you know, and you can still get some assistance through insurance afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. Just not as, um, I guess, popular or, or well discussed as it is when you talk about children on the spectrum. When I was doing research, I was actually quite surprised to find that being this affects one in every 54 children, that this is one of the most underfunded developmental disorders. Um, 
what's the reason behind being so underfunded? And, you know, what do you hope to see, you know, in 2021 and next few years in terms of research within this autism field? That's a great question too. This field is so young. It's relatively incredibly young compared to, um, you know, the field that studies schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder. I mean, autism is still kind of a, a, a hot, you know, diagnosis. It's still just coming in and growing its own feet. So there's still a lot of um, oversight that needs to be done. A lot of, um, you know, people that we need to get into this field and bring bring on board. Um, so I mentioned before that I'm a BCBA and a BCBA is a worldwide certification. So I can go anywhere in the world and practice um, ABA under my BCBA title. We're so in need of people in this field that if you take every BCBA in the entire world and put them to work in the state of California, we still wouldn't have enough coverage for the children with autism that are here in California alone. Just in California alone. Yes. Oh and how my does gosh. everyone get what they the coverage that they need? There's there's not enough of, of people working in the field to cover all of these patients. So sometimes we can have wait lists two years long. So a lot of parents are not getting help at all. Exactly. This is when they usually have to hire like a remote supervisor in a different state who can help them out, or maybe they can privately hire a therapist to come work with their kiddo, which is totally acceptable and totally fine. Um, it's also why there's a lot of burnout in this field, not in addition to, you know, driving a lot and the isolation where I don't go to like an office setting and talk with my coworkers every day. Um, there's also the fact that I'm overloaded. I, I can be overloaded with clients. I'm not currently, thankfully, but in previous companies, I've had, you know, upwards of 50, 60 clients. And when you're driving, you know, hours a day to see clients, it can be really difficult to manage it all. Yeah. So that, that's another huge issue as well. So what is the education process behind getting this certification? So for a BCBA, um, the BCBA tier is kind of the highest tier, if you will. You have to get a master's degree in applied behavior analysis, mm -hmm. 1,500 fieldwork hours, and you have to pass a board certification exam. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a, a direct therapy tier, which is called a registered behavior technician. Mm-hmm. Like a, that's like you need a high school diploma and a 40-hour course and you take an exam. So there's different types of people who want to get into this field um, where it doesn't really take a whole lot initially. It could just take a couple weeks of studying and, and taking the exam and then you can kind of get your foot in the door. And a lot of companies pay for that now because we, we really want to come up with some incentives to bring people into this field. Right, right. And how would you say within 2020 um, with the pandemic, how has that affected in, you know, your ability to work with these children? Have you noticed any behavioral changes affected by the pandemic and by the lockdown? When we came into the pandemic, I was hoping at minimally to at least have status quo with the behaviors. At least a straight line would be great. Mm -hmm. As long as we don't get too much regression, which is what I fully expected. I mean, I personally, <laughs> as an adult, <laughs> We, we all regressed last year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm wearing pajamas like all day long now. Um, but, but surprisingly, these kiddos are so resilient. I have seen great increases. I've even graduated some clients during the pandemic. Um, families are rallying around. They're doing a fantastic job carrying over. And the best part is that I can see way more clients. 
now I can see a client on screen from 10 to 11 and then see another client at 11 and not have to worry about a, a 45 minute commute to the mm-hmm. next client, which is time where I don't get to bill. I don't get to see a client. I'm not helping anyone. So that's been fantastic. I've been my, my personal reach has really grown during the pandemic. And I truly hope that they will continue to allow telehealth afterwards because it's just blown open the door in terms of being able to provide better and more quality services. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to have like a decent lunch break now, <laughs> Not running ragged from driving around or, or sitting in the heat or the rain. So that's been a really huge effect during this pandemic too. Okay. So that I, I think you answered my second question, but I was going to ask you, do you hope to continue doing therapy sessions over virtually going forward? And it sounds like the answer is that will be a lot more effective. Yes, I definitely hope that we're at least able to continue telehealth in some sort of capacity. I totally, I mean, I totally miss going into the homes and getting down on the ground and playing with kids. I totally miss it. Mm-hmm. In time, having the ability, even part-time to work home, you know, and in case one of my kids gets sick, I mean, it's just, it just provides for a much better work-life balance to at least have the, um, the opportunity if I needed to, to work. Yes. And I think it's also important because it teaches the kids and the family about the boundaries that we were talking about, even though there's using too much technology, maybe that's detrimental, but then having technology for certain reasons and for certain purposes, that's really good, but just not to be reliant on it totally, or just to take breaks when you need to. So then, you know, you have a Zoom call, you have the class, you have the lesson for an hour, and then the next two hours, no more screen time, <laughs> or, or however do you, you know, we, we deem the best um, appropriate method to, to continue the day. But I think that that's what is, is just very exciting about in this new year, everyone's willing to communicate a little bit better. Uh, even though you're not directly in you know, in my presence, because I think that before before 2020, it was very easy to pretend you had a good day or pretend you were doing something um, when you were digitally uh, dig- digitally communicating. Right? It was so easy to say like, "Yes, I'm having a good day," and then no one asked you more. But now we're just putting it all on the table. You're, you know, we're filming this in my bedroom right now. Right? You see exactly as my home is. And it's really transparent. And same thing with you, just being invited to your client's home at all hours. And you're also probably more reachable as well. And I know that they definitely appreciate that because you're you're willing to give that advice. And that's, as I'm talking to you, like there's no closed doors. And I think that your clients must be so appreciative. There's very few people I think like you, even though the industry is in desperate need of people like you, it, um, it definitely shows that you are exactly where you, are meant to be at this moment. And I, I know that you're going to inspire other people. And I, and I can't wait for other people to hear this episode and also hear that inspiration and hear that love coming out of your voice as well. Thank you so much. I, my inspiration is drawn 100% from the clients that I work with and their families. The, the resiliency that I see there, it's really extraordinary. And one of the biggest things that I advocate to my families, what, even well before the pandemic, is self-care. Um, And now, obviously now it's more important than ever. And I always tell, make sure that the families understand, like to give yourself grace, give yourself permission to take time out. You've got a lot on your shoulders. I could never in a million years put myself in your shoes. I'll I'll never know what your life is like. 
But what I can know is that you're stressed and you're, you're tired and you need to give yourself permission to just take some time off. Nothing's going to happen to your kid. Your kid's not going to regress. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, things will be better. Your parenting will be better. You'll be a better adult and human to, to make your meals and things if you just take that half hour to yourself. And that's something that is really hard for a lot of mothers, women, fathers, parents to kind of accept. And I'm hoping that during this pandemic that we all, you know, take that more into consideration. I feel like that's been kind of the, uh, the unofficial motto of this pandemic, self-care. Yes, that is such great advice. Um, you can only help when you, when you are your own best. And to be at your own best, you need to take care of yourself first. Otherwise, you know, just like on the airplane, you're supposed to put on your own oxygen mask first before you put on someone else. Um, because you pass out, you can't help your children. <laughs> I am so thankful to have you on this on this episode. Um, you know, my initial thought was I was hoping to spread more awareness about autism to our audience. But now I really hope more people are inspired by you to look into this industry and look into helping children with autism. This is obviously not an easy job, but I know there are a lot of people out there who are just as special as you, Neelam, who want to help children who, I mean, these children really need more than anyone else to have someone who understands them and who can help them through life. You know, through certain things that we don't see as challenge, but it's definitely a challenge in their eyes. So, you know, I really thank you for you being you and we need more people like you on this planet. And, and you know, Ivana have been talking about how this podcast has really instilled our belief in humanity again, <laughs> because I think we both were really beat down by law, by life before and we're very lost. And, you know, through this podcast, we have heard so many amazing stories and from so many amazing people. So thank you so much for being you, for being who you are, for everything that you do. Thank you so much. That that really warms my heart. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for, for um, giving me this platform on your podcast today. Yes. And we are so looking forward to have you back to talk about a different um, topic that you're passionate about, we're passionate about. So hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. But again, thank you so much, Neelan, for coming on. Can you tell our audience where they can find information about Milestone or about yourself? Uh, yeah, so our website is milestonesforautism.net. And on that website, you'll be able to find information about the agency that I work for. Also, if you reach out to your um, physician, they'll be able to give you a whole list of providers that are um, authorized to work with your particular insurance company. So don't hesitate, reach out to your doctor, um, you know, get the services that's out there because there is some really good stuff out there. Okay, and we'll list all the information in our show notes and our website. Thank you so much, Leelam. I hope you have a good rest of Saturday. Thank you both. I hope you do too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really appreciate your support for our little podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it will mean the world to us if you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. This will help more people discover our podcast. You can find Lost and Refound podcast on Instagram at lost.and.refound. If you want to email us, you can do so at lostandrefoundpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I hope you stay positive and creative. Bye. Bye.